If you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, and this is our second go through chapter 5, or do the last half, and today we're going to actually deviate from Revelation a bit, because Jesus, as our Lamb who was slain and standing, resurrected before the throne, with his scars which are still as fresh as the day he resurrected from the tomb, in his glorified body, Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our defense lawyer. So when Jesus defends us before the throne of God, he's got his scars there to prove that our sins are paid for. So I'm just going to pray, and then I'll, I'll read chapter 5, and then we'll get into it. Lord, I thank you for this awesome chapter. I thank you for this fantastic privilege to study heaven, basically, study what's going on in heaven, but more importantly, to study Jesus, to have a first-hand look at what Jesus is doing for us. He's standing before the throne, or seated at the throne, and he's interceding for us with his nail-scarred hands and the hole in his side and the nail prints in his feet. We just thank you for the fact that Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our intercessor. He's our advocate. He's our defense lawyer. He's the one who is standing up for us. And he's the one who declares us not guilty when we believe based on his sacrifice. Help us to understand these things more deeply after today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives for ever and ever. So last week we covered the first half and we saw John before the throne and basically the Holy Spirit had transported John from the island of Patmos to heaven. And here he is in eternity, and he can see everything laid out before him. The Holy Spirit is giving him this ability to see the future. He's in the eternal realm, and he's seeing the things to come, the things which will take place after the end of the church age. So the things to come, as we learnt, the Greek metatelta, and you can reference uh, Revelation one nineteen and chapter 4, verse 1. 
So the setting here is it's the end of the church age. The rapture has just taken place and the reference for that is chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. And at the time of the rapture, the bodies of the dead in Christ resurrect and those who died during the church age receive their glorified bodies. Remember that the spirit and soul were already in heaven okay, with Jesus. And the reference for that is 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. I'm doing the references because this is what we've covered already. You have to listen to last week's or the week before's for the discussion on that. And it says there, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if we die today, then my spirit and soul will go to heaven, but my body will be in the ground. But when the trumpet comes, when the rapture happens, my body will be resurrected and I'll be complete again. That's the way I see it. Immediately after the resurrection of the dead in Christ, those who are alive in Christ, those true born-again believers who are still alive on the earth, they will also be taken up to meet Jesus in the clouds. And as that happens, instantly in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies, these mortal bodies, will be changed into immortal bodies. And the reference for that, or two of them, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52. So now, the entire church is in heaven, represented by the 24 elders, I believe. So all those who believed from Pentecost, the birth of the church, through to the rapture, all with their glorified bodies. And they're all standing before the throne of God. And now the seven-year tribulation is about to start in chapter 6 when Jesus starts to open the seven seals or break the seven seals on the scroll. So what is the scroll? Well, we went in depth in this last week, but just as a quick revision, God the Father is holding this scroll in his right hand. It is a very special scroll. It has seven seals. It's written on both the inside and the back. And as we learned last week, this represents ownership of the earth. Specifically, it's the title deed of the earth which Adam forfeited to Satan when he chose to rebel or sin against God. The writing on the back of the title deed is the sin debt owed by the human race. When Jesus died on the cross, his death was a payment that was required to pay the sin debt we owed. And so he brought back the title deed of the earth from Satan. But ever since the cross, even though the earth belonged to him since then, Jesus has been patiently waiting to come back and claim or take possession of his purchased possession in order, do you remember why? To give us more time to repent, more people to come to him. Is God desire that no one perishes? So what we see in heaven is Jesus in his glorified body, complete with eternal scars, unchanged from the day he resurrected in his glorified body. These scars will not heal. These scars will be there just like they were when he resurrected. When he showed the disciples, here, look, put your finger in my side and, and look at my hands, touch them, put your hand in the nail hole. You know, he's going to still have those scars. We went through this last week, but why this happened. And this is why John described Jesus as a lamb as though it had been slain, standing. So the fact that he is standing is proof of the Resurrection, yes. Also, Jesus is called the Lion because at this point in time, in Revelation 5, Jesus is about to start the process of coming back to claim the earth, to return to the earth and rule for a thousand years. They call that the millennial reign. This week we see Jesus, the Lion, the Lamb, take the scroll from the Father. And we see all heaven break into glorious and spontaneous praise when he does it. So he grabs the scroll from the right hand of the Father and everyone just starts singing. And we'll look at that song later. Why? Because Jesus is both the Lion and the Lamb. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As well as the Lion, the conquering King who has defeated sin and death and Satan. So Jesus conquered Satan when he died on the cross as our substitutionary Passover lamb. Now he's about to come back like a lion to claim the victory that he won as the lamb. Also, last week we talked about why Jesus is the only one who is worthy and why he is so worthy of praise and why he will 
continue to have the scars of his crucifixion for all eternity. So now Jesus is about to claim what is rightfully his, which is the earth, and the treasure contained in the earth or on the earth, which is us, the people. That's what Jesus is really interested in. He doesn't care about the earth. It's going to be destroyed. He wants the people living on the earth. So in the next chapter, next week, chapter 6, Jesus starts opening the seals and we see the judgments start to come upon the earth. This is the start of the tribulation. What happens in Revelation chapters 6 through 22, including the judgments that will come upon the earth over the seven years, are what is written on the scroll. So the scroll dictates what happens. But for today, we're in chapter 5. We're going to look at the last half of chapter 5. And as I said, we're going to look at First John chapter 1, verse 8 to chapter 2, verse 2. And we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills his role as our advocate, as our defense lawyer. Jesus has conveyed us from the power of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Jesus has done. Through his sacrifice, he's taken us from the power of Satan to his kingdom, from Satan's kingdom to his kingdom. And that's the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross. So, let's start at verse 6 in Revelation 5. We're just going to start there and springboard off to 1 John, then come back into Revelation at the end and finish the chapter. So, Revelation 5 verse 6 says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So. Here we see Jesus, and he's standing in the midst of the 24 elders in the throne, and with him are the four living creatures. Now, these creatures are interesting. They have four different faces. And some people have suggested that they could represent the four Gospels. You could call them the four living Gospels, the four accounts of the life of Jesus. So, the first Gospel, Matthew, represents Jesus as a king, and that would be the lion. So, the angels... One of their faces was a lion. The next face was an ox, and that would be the book of Mark, who represents Jesus as the servant. Then there's one of the angels with the faces on these cherubim is, is a human face, and that would be the Gospel of Luke, which represents Jesus in his humanity. And the last face is the face of an eagle, And that would represent John, and that represents Jesus in his deity. So it's just an interesting aside there. Now, last week we talked about the 24 elders, who they could be. Most likely, I believe, they are the church, the entire church. Remember, the number 24 is the number used with priesthood. The church is now fulfilling the role that God made us for. We are being priests of God. And we'll see more evidence as we go along of that. Now, meanwhile, what's happening now is Jesus, the Lamb, is at the center of everything. All eyes are on him. And why is John, the apostle, so careful to say that Jesus stands as a lamb as though it had been slain? And the reason I want to go into now, last week we went into a different reason, but this week is Jesus will always be our advocate. He will always be our high priest. Now what that means is that no charge can ever be successfully brought before the throne of God against anyone who believes in him. Okay? No charge can ever be successfully brought before the throne of God against anyone who believes in him. So we're going to spend a bit of time looking at some verses in 1 John. So first I'm just going to read 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 says, My little children, these things are right to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, sacrifice, or payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. <laughs> Someone said, Now here is a defense lawyer, an advocate that has never lost a case. And he doesn't rip you off when he's defending you. 
He does it for free. Jesus doesn't charge us. We're defending us. It's a free service. So Jesus is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the sacrifice, the payment, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Now what does the word propitiation mean? This is really important to understand. Propitiation means to satisfy God's justice by paying the penalty of all his laws that have been broken by all humanity. And that's what Jesus did. So these verses in 1 John are right after John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's important that we understand that the only reason Jesus can forgive us and treat us as being perfect or innocent is because he paid our fine. Due to our sin, we all deserve to die, but Jesus died in our place. So, after we confess our sins to God, all we need to do is simply believe that we are forgiven. And then we simply turn and walk with him again, and our peace is restored. Our peace that we experience again, the peace of God. Now, if after you have confessed your sin and you don't experience that peace, then guess who's stealing your peace? It's Satan. Satan is accusing you as he accuses the brethren. That's what the scriptures say. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, of the Christians. Okay, So that's why immediately after it reminds us that once we have confessed our sin, it says that we no longer have to feel guilty. Okay, If we do feel guilty after confessing our sins, that's not from God. That's from Satan. It's Satan making us feel guilty. It's not God. This is called condemnation. God never holds our sins against us. Now, Satan uses this trick, this strategy, to stop us confessing our sins. So I want to just give you a practical scenario here. It's just something I made up, okay? So Julie, she's had an abortion. She's a Christian. She knows that she is doing the wrong thing, but she does it anyway. Now, after the event, she feels shame and guilt, and so she runs from God, thinking that God has rejected her because of her sin. She believes that God is angry with her and won't receive her or forgive her. So, you know, the, the typical thing that people do is try and punish themselves or try and do good works. And run from God at the same time. So Satan is telling Julie that God is angry with her and Julie is believing Satan. But is God actually angry with Julie? How is God thinking about Julie? So as I was going through the, this passage in this sermon, I remember that a song I used to listen to as a teenager because I wasn't perfect. I used to make lots of mistakes, sometimes repetitive mistakes. And I knew that God wanted me to confess and repent, but I often had this thought in the back of my mind that God was angry with me and that I had blown it once too often. <laughs> Anyone thought that before? I thought that I was no longer worthy to be his child. And so this song, I'm going to just put the words up, it is really important to me because it just melted my cold and distant heart as it reminded me of my father's heart. So it's called Walk With Me. And it says, Julie, my child, why do you run? Why have you turned away from me? You say it's hard to live perfectly and all you can see is how you fail me constantly. You fail me constantly. And then the chorus says, My blood has cleansed you. Your sins are remembered no more. So come on. And walk with me. And the verse 2 Julie, my child, I'll set you free, for I want you to be with me eternally. I love you so, I want you to know that I'm the one who's calling you home. And then the chorus again My blood has cleansed you, your sins are remembered no more, so come on and walk with me. And that really sums up the heart of God. 
And he wants us to walk with him. But we haven't answered the question yet of how can it be possible that God isn't angry with us when we sin as Christians. So remember that before we come to Christ, we are under the wrath of God. He is very angry with us. So consider Psalm 7, 11 to 13. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. So why is God angry with sin? Why is God angry with us when we're unsaved? Because sin kills, steals and destroys his creation which he owns and loves. So when I sin, I not only offend God, you know, my sin is against God and God alone, but also I'm hurting those around me. We can't sin in isolation. Now, if someone hurts someone I love, it makes me angry. I'm made in the image of God. I have this thing called justice. It's part of who God is. It's part of who I am. It's part of who you are. So when someone hurts someone we love, we get angry. We want justice. In the same way, when we hurt each other, God loves each of us more than we love each other. And he's really angry. Okay, You've hurt my creation. You've hurt the one I love. So back to our question. Since God is very angry with unbelieving sinners, how can it be that God isn't angry with believers when they sin? And the following scripture gives us the answer. It's Hebrews 10, 16-23. This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. So notice there, it's the new covenant. And he also says in verse 17, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. In verse 18 it says in Hebrews, And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can, and you know this verse, it's very famous, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, remember we're talking about Jesus being our high priest, our mediator, our advocate, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. What's his promise? Verse 18, And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. It's done. We can come boldly. So, the new covenant is based on better or unconditional promises. The old covenant, the law, is based on conditional promises, which means that God will only do his part if we do ours. But the problem is, with the law, we can't keep the law. We can't do our part. The covenant is broken. But the new covenant, God does everything. It's called grace. And all we need to do is receive God's pardon, the forgiveness of our sins, as a free gift. So in Revelation chapter 5, there's like two groups of people, one group in heaven, one group on earth. Firstly, there are those on earth who, up to this point in time, have refused the gift of forgiveness and now find themselves going through the seven-year tribulation. Some of them, of course, will be saved. We'll get into that later. And the second group of people is us, the church, those who are born again into the new birth. We have been raptured now and are now in heaven. Now why? Is it because we're better than those people left on earth? No. It's only because we have put our trust in Christ's sacrifice in our place. We have Christ as our advocate, our defense lawyer, who always stands between us and the Father as our mediator. And his defense for us is simple. He is our payment, our propitiation, our sacrifice. 
because Jesus died, paying the penalty for my sins then, I don't have to. And that's it. Because Jesus died, paying the penalty for my sins then, I don't have to. So when Jesus died on the cross, all the wrath of the Father, not just for the sins of all who will believe, but also for the sins of the whole world, was poured out on Jesus. 1 John 2.2 2. Jesus absorbed all the fury, anger, wrath and righteous indignation of the Father, even for those who would never believe in him. 1 John 2.2 2 says, I'll put it up for you. He himself is a sacrifice, propitiation, that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, the sins of all the world. So there is no longer any anger left for those who are in Christ. Propitiation is not just the legal requirement, it's also the wrath, it's the anger, it's the indignation. It's all gone. It's all being poured out on Christ. So as a Christian, when I sin, the Father says, what sin? My sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Only God can forget. Do you understand that? Only God can forget. I cannot forget. But God has the ability to forget. And what he chooses to forget is our sins. I am pure and innocent in God's eyes. Why? Because I am in Christ. I am pure and holy because I am in Christ. Because I have, by grace, through faith, accepted Christ as my Passover lamb, as my substitute. So now, when the Father looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' perfect life, which has been imputed or credited to my account. You see that in Romans. This is why we as Christians, no matter how often we stumble and fall, can come boldly, yet humbly, to the throne of grace, where we are promised to find help in time of need. So, no matter how great or how often the sin, when we come to the throne, we will always find that our sin has already been forgiven. We get there, we go, oh God, I'm so sorry, I did this, this is the 50th time I've done this stupid thing. I've hurt, you know, a family member or whatever. I keep getting angry, whatever it is, doesn't matter. We come to the throne, it's already forgiven. You don't have to beat yourself up. Okay? So we come back to, just want to put this up and just remind you why we're studying this. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So what we're going to do now is just quickly go through First John 1, 8, 2, 2, and build on what we already know. And again, this is all the basics, but Sometimes it's good to come back to the basics. It encourages me. So I'm going to put the scripture up there on the board. It's 1 John 1, 8 2, 2. It says, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice, the propitiation or payment, that atones for our sins. And not only for our sins, but the sins of the world. So these wonderful verses accurately describe the role that Jesus plays for us in the story of redemption and why Jesus is still seen as a lamb as though it had been slain, standing Revelation 5.6. So verse 8 in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, to say that we have no sin puts us in a dangerous place because God's grace and mercy is only for sinners. Jesus said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Okay? Not the righteous, sinners. Of course, the fact is we are all sinners. But what he's saying is, I've come to call those who recognize that they're sinners. <laughs> so, there's people who say, or admit they're not perfect, they say, 
everyone makes mistakes or I'm only human or no one is perfect. But that's not the humility we need when it comes to repentance. We need to say, I am a sinner. I am a dirty, rotten sinner. I am a liar, a thief, a murderer, an adulterer at heart. I am a idolater. But I have a Savior who cleansed me from all my sin. And in verse 9, in verse John, it says, If we confess our sins, so though I may sin, sin does not need to remain a hindrance to my relationship with God. I and you will find complete cleansing from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins. Now, to confess means what? It means to say the same as. It means to agree with. So when we are confessing our sins, we are actually saying, and should be believing, the same thing about our sin that God says about it. We need to see our sin as God does, as being vile and horrible and destructive. So Jesus told a story about this. You probably know it. It's the self-righteous Pharisee and the humble tax collector praying at the temple. The Pharisee is bragging about how righteous he was and all the good deeds that he was doing. Well, the tax collector just said, remember what he said? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The one who confessed his sin was the one who agreed with God about how bad he was, about the true condition of his heart. So we're going to read Luke 18, 9-14. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. <laughs> I like that. He's not praying to God. He's not in relationship with God. He's just talking to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus comes to a very sobering conclusion to this story. The tax collector, the one who recognized and confessed that he was a sinner, went home justified. Now what does that mean? The tax collector was not guilty. He was declared not guilty in God's court. His fine had been paid. It was just if I'd never sinned for the tax collector. And because of that, he was now free to enjoy a relationship with God and go to heaven when he died. However, the Pharisee, the self-righteous religious person, the one who attended religious meetings each week, who did many good works and was admired and respected in the community and in the temple there and the religious institutions, he was not justified. He was, in God's sight, still guilty. Now, when God judges him by the Ten Commandments, he will be found guilty and will be given what he has earned what he deserves, what he has spent his life working for. What's that? It's the wages of sin, which is death, eternity in the lake of fire. So in verse 9, I want to point out something more about the word confess. Confess is not in the past tense. It's not something we do as a one-off. Confess is in the present tense. Confess is something we do on an ongoing basis. Some people call this keeping short accounts with God. Okay, So as soon as we realize that we have sinned, we should confess. Otherwise, we let Satan have a foothold in our lives and our hearts. Now, you don't have to go to a priest to confess your sins. Why? Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 We go directly to God to confess our sin. We admit to God that what we have done is wrong. And we ask his forgiveness based on what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Now, here's a false belief I want to talk about. Some people believe that if you die with unconfessed sin, you will not go to heaven. That's not true. We are forgiven of all 
our sins, past, present and future, the moment we are born again. If this is the case, then why confess? Why bother confessing if all our sins are already forgiven? Well, confession is vital to maintain relationship with God. And this is the context of these verses. If you go back a few verses, it talks about walking in the light. Okay? Walking in the light. As God convicts us of sin that is hindering our fellowship with him, we must confess it and receive forgiveness and cleansing for our relationship with God to continue without hindrance. So here's a practical example that may help explain how sin affects our relationship with God. I'm married to Marissa, my beautiful wife there. My legal status, my positional status, is married. I am one with my wife. I've been joined to her in God's sight and we are one flesh. But one day, I have an argument with Marissa and now we're not talking to each other. But we are still married. Yeah? I'm still one with my wife, even though I'm not talking to her. But once I confess, admitting my wrong, and ask Marissa for forgiveness, then we are on talking terms again. The fellowship, the relationship is restored on a practical level. Okay? That's the purpose in confession once we're already a Christian. We want to keep short accounts with God so it doesn't hinder our relationship with God. So, just want to point out again that during the argument and the time when we weren't talking, we were still married. Positionally, nothing had changed. I was always one with my wife. My marital status was always married. And that never changed. So what did change is a practical or relational or experiential aspect of my marriage. We weren't on good terms. We weren't talking. I wasn't walking in the light of my marriage to my wife. There was a problem, and until the problem was dealt with, our relationship was broken on a practical level. I was no longer enjoying fellowship with my wife, even though I was married to her. But when I apologized, the fellowship was restored. So the same is true for the believer's relationship with God. Positionally, legally, I am a part of the bride of Christ. I am a son of God. I am adopted into his family. Once I'm in, I'm in. The scriptures say in Romans 8, 38, 39 that nothing can separate us from God's love. So I believe once saved, always saved. That's a certainty. So why can I be sure? Why am I so sure? Because my salvation is based on God's unconditional promises and not my own performance, good deeds, or my own righteousness. Instead, I have Christ's perfect righteousness. The perfect life Jesus lived has been imputed or credited to me. My entrance into heaven is guaranteed because I am now and forevermore in Christ. And by grace, I am accepted into the beloved. And one of my all-time favorite verses is this one. Ephesians 1.6 To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It's all by grace. It's an unconditional promise. Once I've received it, because it's a gift, I can't lose it. So what this means is that the day a person from the heart repents of their sin and puts their trust in God's provision of the Saviour, Jesus, who became the payment for their sins when he died on the cross, then a new life begins. They have become a new creation. They are a child of God. Now, unfortunately, the Bible says that there are many who name the name of Christ, who profess to believe in him, but in reality have never repented. They have never had a change of heart about sin. They have never truly turned away from sin and to God. So we must all come to the place of humility and brokenness that tax did in the story we just read in Luke 18. We need to be like him and recognize our vileness, our sin-stained life, that we do deserve hell, that we have, in fact, earned eternity in hell, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And it's like the tax collector, figuratively, beating our breast and crying out to God for mercy. That's what we do when we're saved. We're crying out to God for mercy. God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I don't deserve it, but I'm asking anyway, because I know you promised to do that if I asked. 
So like when we repent from the heart, genuinely being sorry for our sin and turning from our sin and also trusting that Jesus' death on the cross was a payment for our sins, then we are truly saved and nothing can change our position in Christ. The way we live our life as a Christian will determine how much of God's love we will experience, but we will always belong to God. Does that make sense? So the way we live our life will determine how much of God's love we experience. The more we follow him, the more we abide with him, the more joy we will experience, the closer we will be to him, but we will still belong to him. It's just like some married people seem to fight all the time, but some get along really well. So the couple who fights all the time, they don't have as good as marriage as the two people who have learned to get along, but both couples are still married. One has a good marriage and one has a terrible marriage, but they're still married. Okay, so, so like the Christian. The Christian who's not walking with the Lord is like having a terrible marriage, but they're still in Christ. So let's continue with our verses in First John. It says in verse 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us. So because of Jesus' work, the righteousness of God, his perfection, is now our friend. It's not something we need to be scared of. It's our friend. It ensures that we will be forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty. He is faithful and just. He can do it justly because it's fair. The actual penalty for the sin has been paid. Now in chapter 2 of First John, it says, These things are right to you that you may not sin. So here's another question that we have to deal with. Is it possible to have sinless perfection while we're living in this sinful human body where we have this human nature attached to us? And the answer is no. Okay, We will never attain sinless perfection while living in this mortal body because of our sin nature. However, it is God's will for us that while we don't become sinless, we should sin less. Okay? We don't become sinless, but we should be sinning less. We should be growing more like Jesus. And as we become more like him, we do more of the things that he does and less of the things that our sinful nature wants us to do. So here is God's provision. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, this is not an excuse for sin. Okay. We can't be saying, well, I can't help it, I have a sin nature, and God knows that we all sin. It's inevitable, I can't help it. No. God has not made it that we must sin. Why? Well, all the resources for spiritual victory are ours in Christ Jesus, and they're always with us. From the moment we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And you can see Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8, and 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will always give us a way out. We have the power in us to live the life God wants us to live. Why don't we? Because we choose not to. We follow our sinful nature. And that's Romans 8, 5 to 6. Those who follow sinful nature, it leads to death. Those who follow the Spirit, at least to life. If you choose, it uses the words choose, if you choose to. We don't sin because we have to, we sin because we choose to. And the whole thing that John is saying here, these things are right to you that you may not sin, it's in the context of walking in the light. It hurts our relationship with God. These things are right to you that you may not sin. He's telling us that sin affects our relationship with God. Don't sin. But if you do, it's okay. There's a provision made for that. Go and get forgiveness. And that's where we come to, in chapter 2, verse 1 in First John, we have an advocate. Jesus is our provision. Jesus is our defense lawyer. He is our defender, even if we sin now. Now, God is not shocked when we do something terrible, okay? He's seen it all in advance. He didn't forgive us at one time, only to later say, oh dear, 
Look what they've done now. If I knew they were going to do that terrible thing, if I knew they're going to be so unfaithful to me, I would have never forgiven them. No. God doesn't say that because he already knew. So this is a scenario. It's as if we stand accused in the heavenly court before our righteous judge, God the Father. Our advocate, Jesus, stands up to answer the charges. Now what does he say? He is completely guilty, your honour. He is completely guilty, your honour. In fact, he has done even worse than what he is accused of. And now makes full and complete confession before you. The gavel slams. Bang. And the judge asks, what should his sentence be? Our advocate answers, his sentence shall be death. He deserves the full wrath of this righteous court. And all along, our accuser Satan is having great fun. Ha ha ha. You're guilty. We're all guilty. And we admit our guilt. We see our punishment. But then, our advocate asks to approach the bench. And as he draws close to the judge, he simply says, Dad, this one belongs to me. I paid his price. I took the wrath and punishment from this court that he deserves. The gavel sounds again and the judge cries out, Guilty as charged, penalty satisfied. Our accuser, Satan, starts going crazy. Aren't you even going to put him on probation? No, the judge shouts. The penalty has been completely paid by my son. There is nothing to put him on probation for. Then the judge, the father, turns to our advocate, Jesus, and says, Son, you said this one belongs to you. I release him into your care. Case closed. So I I like that little story there. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We may think that our sin sets God against us, but it doesn't. God's love is so great towards us that he went to the ultimate measure to make us be able to stand in the face of his holy righteousness. Therefore, through Jesus, God can be for us even when we sin. It's pretty cool, eh? As Christians, God is still for us even when we sin because Jesus is there as our defense lawyer. Here's another way of looking at it. A human defense lawyer argues for the innocence of his client, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus admits our guilt and then enters his plea on our behalf as the one who has made an atoning sacrifice for our sinful guilt. He doesn't try to avoid the charge. He says, yep, the charge is true, but I pay the fine. So we need Jesus as an advocate because Satan accuses us before God. That's Revelation 12.10. Now, we need to distinguish between the condemning accusation of Satan and the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we'll come back to that soon. So it says, and he is the propitiation, verse 2, sacrifice or payment for our sins. This means that Jesus is the one who atones for and takes away our sins, but not just ours, but for the whole world. Now, this is interesting. It says, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, though Jesus made his propitiation for the whole world, the whole world is not saved and in fellowship with God. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Some people are saved and some people are not. And this is because, we need to try and understand this, atonement does not equal forgiveness. The Old Testament day of atonement, for example, Demonstrates this, Leviticus 16.34. I'll put it up for you. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for how many of their sins? All their sins, once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. So all of their sin was atoned for, yet not all Israel was saved. That makes sense? Not everyone who lived in Israel was going to heaven. Some of them did not accept by faith the Messiah. They were looking forward to the Messiah. All those sacrifices showed them. It was a reminder of their sins. 
they had to still, by faith, look to God and say, I need a saviour, please forgive me. Hebrews says that the purpose of the Old Testament sacrifice was to remind them of their sin, to point them to the saviour. So, the words, but also for the whole world, announce to the world that God has taken care of everyone's sin problem by the propitiation or payment or sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Sin doesn't have to be a barrier between God and man if man will receive the propitiation, the gift of forgiveness that God has provided in Jesus. So think of it this way. I buy you a brand new house. I buy all of you a brand new house. But not all of you want to live in it. I hand the keys to you and you say, no, I don't want that. I like the house I'm living in now. I don't want to move. And so the house which I've already purchased for you remains vacant. It's got your name on the door. The keys are in the lock. But you never used it. You never opened it. And Martin Luther says something similar to, it's an obvious fact that you too are a part of the whole world. So that your heart cannot deceive itself and think, the Lord died for Peter and Paul, but not for me. You can't say that. Jesus died for everyone. The gift of forgiveness is available to all people. Another verse that shows us this is John 1.29. This is John the Baptist talking. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So to summarize what we've learned so far, as a Christian, my legal or positional standing is that I am perfect in God's sight, no matter what I do, say, or think. Why? I have been justified. It's as just if I'd never sinned. I've been declared not guilty in God's court because Jesus paid the fine or penalty for all my sins when he died on the cross. So, if you are a believer, don't ever believe that God is angry with you. Yes, we will grieve the Holy Spirit, and we will feel that practical separation, and we will experience God's fatherly discipline. But this conviction of sin is designed to make us want to come back to him. Okay? This conviction of sin causes us to want to come back to him. We want to go back into fellowship. In the New Testament, God never ever punishes a believer. Punishment is getting even. It's retribution. On the other hand, God's discipline is forward-looking. Its purpose is to train us to be more Christ-like, to walk closer to him in the future. Now, as an example, think of how Jesus treated Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus told him he would. Peter said, no, nah, i never do that. Peter was proud. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter was broken. Peter thought, I've messed up completely. Peter went back to fishing. You know, he thought it was all over. I'm disqualified for ministry now. I can't do anything. What did Jesus do? He sought out Peter restored him to fellowship and gave him a job to do. He restored him back into ministry. And Jesus is doing the same with us today. He wants to restore fellowship and reinstate us to service. Now, in contrast to the conviction of the Holy Spirit which draws me to God, if I instead feel that God has rejected me and that he won't accept me or is angry with me or is punishing me, this is condemnation from Satan. This is Satan lying to me and deceiving me about how the Father thinks about me, and he's trying to keep me from confessing and repenting of my sin, so I'm out of fellowship with God. Okay? And Christians who are out of fellowship with God are useless. We're miserable, and we can't be used by God. So think of it like this. The Christian who sins but doesn't repent right away is positionally still perfect, but practically not enjoying or experiencing their relationship with God. They are not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like having an argument with my wife. I'm still married, but practically I'm not enjoying the relationship. 
And remember the chorus of that song that I've read out to you? My blood has cleansed you, your sins are remembered no more, so come on and walk with me. So all Jesus wants us to do is to walk with him, to experience and enjoy a love relationship with him. That's it. So if we sin, all God wants us to do is to deal with that sin by believing his promises and confess our sin, trust him, and depend on the Holy Spirit and move forward. Get back into the ring and keep fighting. And again, reminder, God is never disappointed in you because when he adopted us as his child, he already knew all the sins we would commit. He has no unrealistic expectations of us. He knows we are dust, that we are frail and weak. What we need to do is recognize our weakness and frailty and therefore seek God's strength and power, and then we will experience victory. So I'm just going to quickly run through the last few verses in Revelation, just to finish off. So back to 5 verse 6. So there's our little excursion finished. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the lamb, this is an important word. It's the word for a little pet lamb. And this points us back to the Passover. With the Passover, they would take a beautiful, spotless pet lamb and have it in their house and treat it as a pet for over a week or more. And then they would offer that pet lamb as a sacrifice for sin. It would be a difficult thing to do. If I was in that culture, I'm pretty sure I'd get the point that sin must be punished. And it's a difficult, costly sacrifice. So the picture here is that Jesus is God, the Father's treasured pet, his only son who he loves and is pleased with. And that's why this word is used here, the word for pet lamb. Jesus is God's treasured pet. God took heaven's best and sent him to die for you and me. And so the little lamb, as I slain, is standing before the throne and those he saved with him. Now, having seven horns, the horns in the Bible are a symbol of power, and seven is a number of perfection or completion. So the treasure little lamb is omnipotent. It's talking about omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. The seven eyes show his omniscience and his omnipresence. He knows everything and he is everywhere at once. So these point to his deity. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. He is fully man and fully God. Now, I just want to talk quickly about how Jesus lived on earth. In John 14, 12, it says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. Why? Because when Jesus lived on earth, he did everything by the power of the Spirit. When we receive the same Holy Spirit that dwelt in Jesus, We do the same things. The same things that Jesus did, we can do because Jesus did everything by the power of the Spirit. So that was just something I wanted to mention. So when we depend on the power of the Spirit, we have victory. When we don't depend on the power of the Spirit, we fail. And verse 7 in Revelation 5, so Jesus takes a scroll out of the hand of the Father, this Basically the sign of the start of the tribulation. It's the beginning of the end for Satan and the world system. Because after seven years, Jesus comes back and rules the world, destroying all his enemies. Verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So this is us as priests, the music, the incense, the prayers. This is us fulfilling our priestly role, and golden bowls full of incense. Here are our prayers. God sees our prayers as precious. He puts them in golden bowls. 
Psalm 141 verse 2 says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. So it links this prayer and incense. And then verse 9, it says, They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Who is singing this song? Who's qualified to sing this song? Can angels sing this song? No, because they're not redeemed. It's the church. It's everyone from all the different nations who have put their faith in Christ for salvation. Now, this song, I've got it on the board here, it shows a lot about redemption. It says, the price of redemption was Jesus was slain. The work of redemption, he's redeemed us. The destination of our redemption is we've been redeemed to God. The payment for our redemption was his blood. The scope of his redemption was every tribe, tongue and people and nation, meaning all the Gentiles and the Israelites. And the length of redemption, so to speak, he has made us kings and priests to our God. And the result of our redemption is we shall reign on the earth. So, verse 9, it says, you are worthy. Now, in the days of the Apostle John, Roman emperors were celebrated when they came into a town or something with the Latin expression, very dignus, which is translated, you are worthy. So, Jesus, the ruler, the ultimate ruler of the world, is honoured with, you are worthy. And finally, verses 11 to 14, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives for ever and ever. So blessing, in verse 13 it says, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, you want to show that Jesus is God? Take him to verse 13. This would be blasphemy if the Lamb wasn't God, you know, Jesus wasn't God. But here we see Jesus and the Father both being worshipped at the same time. Now, in verse 14, it says, fell down and worshipped him. And the Greek word here used for worshipped is to prostrate or to lay down before another in complete submission. So I picture us in heaven falling on our knees and then like in the Middle Eastern fashion, hands face on the ground, prostrate before the throne. And it's a picture of our total and complete submission to him in our worship. So, conclusion. Heaven's court has spoken. The little treasured pet lamb that was slain is now the lion of Judah and has taken up in his hand the scroll with the seven seals. And that contains everything that's going to happen to the end of Revelation. He's undoing the seals so we can open the scroll. And each time he opens or breaks one of those seals, there's a new judgment. And we'll get into that as we go through. Jesus is the only one worthy because he's the one who paid the price. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the final point I want to cover today. It's important that we understand the Greek word for take away the New Testament takeaway, is not like the Old Testament word used for atonement. When the animals were offered for the people's sins, they atoned for them, which means to cover. So if you had dirty dishes in the sink, you could, in Old Testament sense, you could put a white sheet over your dirty dishes, over your sink, and you'll say, it's covered, it's atoned for. You can't see those dirty dishes anymore. Okay, The sink is 
clean. <laughs> All right. So, but the New Testament Greek word, it doesn't mean to cover. It means to take away. Our sins have been taken away. So, behold the Lamb of God who atones the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. Old Testament, the blood of goats and calves and sheep and that cannot deal with sin, cannot forgive sin. Only the blood of Jesus can. So here we are, celebrating and rejoicing and worshipping the Lamb who is our advocate, our defense lawyer. And remember that as a believer, we can never be condemned because Jesus has already paid our fine and he represents us before the Father. God convicts, Satan condemns. Conviction leads us to God, draws us back to him, Satan condemns, and he wants to draw us away from God, keep us away from God. Don't allow Satan to deceive you. Instead, trust his promises. And I just want to finish with those verses from 1 John. It says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful picture of you with your glorified body still bearing the marks of your crucifixion. Lord, thank you for being our advocate. Thank you for being our defense lawyer. Thank you for being the one who stands in our place. and defends us before the Father. Lord, it's such an amazing thing to think about being in Christ, of being seen as perfect. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be perfect, practically speaking as well. Positionally, we're always perfect once we're saved, but practically, when this body dies, or when we get a new body, if it lived to the rapture, then our sinful nature will be gone and we will no longer have the capacity to sin. We will literally be perfect. We can only do what is right and pure and holy. So we look forward to that day, Father. But in the meantime, you've given us all the resources we need to live a pure and holy life. Help us to do that. Help us to trust you. And when we do sin, when we choose not to do what you want us to do and, and choose to do what we want to do instead, Help us just to confess, repent, and keep walking with you. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.